What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson. My guest today is an associate professor of journalism and English at Rutgers University, Newark. Her writing appears everywhere. Uh, New York Review of Books, Washington Post, Descent, New Republic, The Guardian. I could go on. She, she has a, a book that we're not going to talk about directly today, but I feel like its imprint is kind of woven throughout the discussion in a, in a sense. Uh, it's called Cooley Woman, The Odyssey of Indenture. It was shortlisted for the Orwell Prize, which if you know anything about that, it's, it's prestigious. It's a big deal. And she wrote a brilliant essay that just came out in Boston Review called Unmaking Asian Exceptionalism. And the subtitle that they've got on it is On Violence and the Possibility of Solidarities in America. My guest is the wonderfully prolific artistic writer, Gaitra Bahadur. Thanks so much for coming on the show. How are you doing? Hi, and thank you so much for having me, for being interested in this subject, uh, this particular bit of history that has been forgotten. Um, it's really nice to be here. You write for some of the same places I do. Yeah. Uh, so I know you're, you're interested in um, dialogue and argumentation and and. and um, you know, also lived lived experience in, in thinking about and highlighting lived ex experience. So thank you for having me. Yeah, lived experience. Um, I have to say, before we get into this, I, you know, I found reading you so refreshing that I went and dug up like several of your essays from the past. Your book is on order. In fact, I spent a lot of time in my day job reading prose that is basically punditry and you know, foreign policy analysis. It's they're logical constructions, but it's like fairly routinized, templated writing. And where they're all logos, no pathos, you, you, I mean, you still make logical points that you're driving at oftentimes, but you package it in a, in a humanity that makes it memorable, makes it resonate. I just, and it's so different from what I'm used to reading um, in a, in the best way. Like it, it's got a spiritual quality almost. How do you think about writing with pathos, a human-centered point of view? Is it strategic? Is it the only way that you you couldn't do it otherwise? Like, how, what do you think about that? I, I think it's the latter, you know. Um, each of us has a sort of uh, unique imprint, I think, of our thought patterns, the mm -hmm. same way we do of our fingerprints. I feel like each mind has its own print. Um, and mine, um, the way I think, is through, well, lived experience could be one way of framing it, but I think and write imagistically. So <laughs> I often begin with a moment or an image, and I feel like this is, this is scientific, right? It's inductive thinking rather than deductive. Yeah. Because you begin with the evidence, what the is. data, even if the data is an image or memory, you start there and then you work up from those particulars to what the idea might be that you're trying to communicate or that you're wrestling with, trying to make sense of. So in the case of this particular piece, um, it does begin with an image and a memory. Um, and that uh, image or memory uh, was of myself sitting on a bed 
in my parents' house in Jersey City, New Jersey in 1992. And I was watching the Republican National Convention. And I, I mean, I remember that as if it were yesterday, somehow lying on that bed and Pat Buchanan's face suddenly like filling the screen, right? Paleocon um, presidential candidate at the time, yeah. That's right, yeah. And um, I, 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 I just had a, a profound like emotional reaction to, uh, to what he had to say. And, you know, so I, I remember crying. I remember crying and it's not like I'm a particularly um, teary person, mm-hmm. although I mean, I was 17 at the time, so maybe that was different then. Yeah. But um, when I think about xenophobia, um, and this particular essay is about um, an, uh, a white supremacist gang, the Dotbusters, when I think about them, it, it, it's this moment I begin with, this image, and I work from there. So, um, yeah, no, the pathos isn't strategic, if we define pathos again as, you know, what are the elements of pathos, um, working from anecdote, from personal experience, mm-hmm. um, you know, then that's that's just the way my brain works. Um, I don't see it as opposed to logos, reason or argument. I, I see it as a pathway to reason, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it totally does. I, just, I wanted to hear your explanation of it because I think it makes total sense there's a way i can't quite articulate it but there's something missing in political writing and political conversations that are in a purely pundit analytical voice there's some like the human reasoning element or something is missing the human impact uh right of of big ideas and arguments Uh, how does that affect individual lives or uh group lives you know, you mentioned punditry. Pat Buchanan, at that time in 1992, when he was running for the Republican nomination, uh, he probably was best known to people at that time as a pundit, right? He was on Crossfire. Yeah, yeah that's right. On CNN, yeah. right? So, I mean, he he is um, or was definitely in that moment the kind of archetypal pundit, right? So, if if that kind of thinking you know, if if he is if he is the paragon of it, then we're we're all sort of in trouble. What's missing is, again, like the the, the humanity, the the human impact of big ideas like that. You know, and uh, idea of um, what we stand for as Americans. The way he he framed it, you know, kind of a defense of culture. Um, that speech, I've, I've forgotten what the it it was such a famous speech that it became known as I think something like the culture wars speech, or it wasn't that, precisely, but it, it was a speech that made an impact on many people, not just on myself. Right. So, but the, the kind of core of it was um, this call to defend American values and American culture, right? If that's your big idea, but you're not, if you're not centering people like the broad spectrum of Americans in that, then, um, then you're definitely missing a key piece of what would make your argument solid. Why did that declaration um, from Pat Buchanan trigger such emotions from you in that moment? What were you, what were you responding to there? Yeah. So I was 17. We had immigrated to the United States um, when I was almost seven. 
So um, a decade seems like a long time, maybe, to, to get over <laughs> leaving one place and coming to another, but it, really, it, it, it isn't, it isn't. And I think that um, I felt vulnerable as a brown person in that city and in the United States at that time. Mm-hmm. And of course, that sense of insecurity had everything to do with what was with this game that I mentioned, the dot busters. Um, and um, starting in 1987, about five years before this speech, there were a series of um, attacks um, probably coordinated in, in some way against um, South Asians in Jersey City. Yeah, I didn't know about any of this, by the way. And it's a remarkable piece of the American story that gets sort of erased uh, if nobody tells it. Yeah. Can you can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, it was part of my story, our story of coming to America. I didn't realize until later that it had um, broader significance in American history um, in that some of the some of the attacks led to the first federal civil rights case brought on behalf of a South, South Asian person in the U.S. Hmm. Okay, so so 1980s, um, uh, late 1980s in the United States, you know, in Detroit, there was the Vincent Chin murder, and he was, uh, you know, attacked out, at and outside a bar by people, patrons of the bar who had, one of them had lost a job um, in the auto industry, and there was this very kind of like, anti-Asian sentiment because of it. So Vincent Chin, um, he was he was he was mistakenly targeted. I mean he was not um, Japanese American, but they they thought he was. So there was a kind of yes. dislocated economic, displaced economic anxiety and a, a human being again like made a scapegoat. So that was happening. That was significant. And then the dot busters um, uh, that was happening on the East Coast. Um, so the name Dot Busters, it comes from uh, the bindi or the dot worn on the forehead, sometimes by observant Hindu women. Mm-hmm. Uh, so dot became a slur, dot or dot head became a slur for Indian or Indian looking person. And um, in August of 1987, there was a letter published in the local newspaper, the Jersey Journal, um, by self-declared dot busters. I think this is the first time the word was used by some anonymous people declaring themselves in the newspapers to be members of this group, saying that we'll go to any extreme to get Indians to move out of Jersey City, Um, you know, sharing a tactic, saying that they scanned the phone book and looked for the last name Patel. Have you seen how many of them there are? That's intense, man. Yeah, but as looking for targets, right? And, you know, several days after that letter ran, a man named Patel, who lived a few blocks away from us, was attacked while he was sleeping in his bed with a metal pipe. So, I mean, over the course of several years, there were a series of attacks, um, some of them low level, some of them high level. I mean, high level, I mean, they're all high level, but in the sense that they led to um, someone being killed, perhaps more than one person being killed. It's it's not clear 
in each and every case um, what the motivation was or who might have been mm -hmm. responsible. But at least one person, a city corps employee um, from Jersey City, um, attacked on the street, uh, you know, uh, never emerged from his coma. And then pretty close to where my family was living, um, a medical resident attacked with baseball bats on the street. Um, he did emerge from his coma, but with so much brain damage that he couldn't remember the details needed to convict the people responsible. And that that is the case that led to the federal hate crimes trial. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was this moment of intense anxiety among South Asian people in Jersey City um, in the late 80s and the early 90s. Um, and it's still used, it's a, um, among South Asians in the United States, um, among South Asians in South Asia, if you say dotbusters, they will know what you mean. Yeah, this is horrific. And of course, there's one of the remarkable things about this is that people were being attacked as Hindus or Indians, but in fact, the scope of the violence and the discrimination included, it, it, it didn't limit itself to that. Like, you could right. be Pakistani or Sri Lankan or Bangladeshi, like the violent hate had a way of imposing a regional identity on people who probably saw themselves more as a particular national immigrant, right? Yeah, it's really very curious um, because um, a lot of different people from different uh, countries, nations, states, and, and, and histories were reduced to Hindus. Mm -hmm. So the city corps um, employee Navroz Modi, who was killed, his family was actually Parsi, not Hindu, but at least according to the ethnic press that covered that incident, the people attacking him um, taunted him with Hindu, Hindu, Hindu. Um, and my family, I mean, we had small scale things happen to us. Um, and one morning we woke up to racist graffiti on the side of our house and on the front where the garage was, Hindus go home. Right. Well, I, I don't know if, how could they know what, what religion we were, whether we were Hindu, Muslim, Parsi or Christian, because yeah. all of these are religions that are common in, in South Asia. Um, yeah, I mean, and so this was a moment sort of before Islamophobia took hold um, as a phenomenon on a wide scale in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, and another um, interesting point is that the first wave of South Asian immigration to the United States in the early 20th century um, also led to backlashes. So there were, um, there were, there was a riot um, in Bellingham, Washington against South Asians. But in that moment, um, the term South Asian wasn't used. And Hindu, spelled H-I-N-D-O-O, -O, was, used, was used to denote South Asians. Hind meaning, you know, from India. Yeah. Right. Um, so I don't know if the dotbusters, if their only conception of someone from that part of the world was someone Hindu, or if this was sort of a holdover from that history where Hindu was kind of synonymous with Indian. Yeah. But you're right. There is this reductive force. Um, I mean, this is the way that racism works is that it, it erases um, nuance and complexity. My, my own family, um, we 
we are from Guyana in South America. Mm -hmm. So yes, we are Hindu and yes, we are of Indian origin, but we're also South American, right? I mean, um, those are nuances that escape and young, young men for the most part acting out in this way. Um, I try my best, although there is emotion involved, uh, to understand where this might have been coming from mm-hmm. uh, violence as a sociological phenomenon. Um, and the Dockbusters events, they, they uh, were defining for me. It's probably why I became a reporter. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely why listening to Pat Buchanan in that moment, um, I had the reaction that I did because um, shortly after arriving in the United States, we were made to feel that we were not welcome. Mm-hmm. So his words on the, on the TV, <laughs> you know, were re- reinforcing the messages that we were getting on the street, you know, the graffiti on, on, on the garage door and, um, you know, being spat at. I mean, my, my father was um, chased once by, again, young men. They couldn't have been more than 17 mm-hmm. you know, with knives. He was just going to... Jesus buy some milk or whatever at the corner grocery store. So there was, I mean, this was real. It was a a physical threat. And, um, you know, uh, I, a lot of my friends um, were in school. They were also South Asian. They were Pakistani, Indian, Guyanese, right? I mean, those boys were chased all the time. But um, I think the, the girls, we were protected more. I, I know that, I mean, my parents were protective anyway, but we were even more so protected because there was a sense that we could get hurt, physically hurt if we were allowed to hang out. So it was school to home, school to mm-hmm. home because of that threat. Man, you're, what you're describing is so textured and it, the experience, like taking away a particular understanding of that and of like, the negative consequences of racism and like how it all works. There's so much there. It's undeniable. And yet it's, if you were to just try and do a pundit thing and describe like, well, racism leads to a flattening of identity that ensnares lots of people. You miss all that texture and all there's like a, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm Well, you miss the, the psyche, the yeah. wounded psyche, yeah. right? Which is again, like I can't imagine. I feel like somehow I would be a different person today if I had not grown up in the epicenter of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, this episode is part of my next book project. And recently I went on to the federal courthouse in Newark, New Jersey, and I, I, I read transcripts of that um, federal hate crimes case mm-hmm. uh, and interviews with um, sorry, testimony by some of the, the young men involved, some of the accused and um, witnesses, and realized that, oh, these guys, they were holding meetings, uh, not, not official meetings, but they were hanging out at a bar that was two blocks away from us, you know, and they were they were picked up. I know, I know that street, you know, on Thorn Street, right? That, that we were literally like surrounded by people who were, um, you know, not not happy to have us there. So, I 
I didn't even realize the full extent of how surrounded we were until reading those transcripts. Man. Um, but but yeah, so I mean, fascinating. The yeah. On, on psyche is, is so key, right? Because yeah. it shaped me in deep ways. Um, and what we do with that is, is so important, right? What we do with that wounded sense of self or that sense of insecurity or being threatened, what do we do? What do we do with that? What's, what's the next step? Mm -hmm. Right. So, I mean, I became, I covered immigration for many years for very, I'm a former newspaper reporter. So in New Jersey and Texas and Philly, um, and I covered immigration in, uh, I wrote a lot of stories about immigration and immigrants, right? Um, but I also, I mean, I went out of my way. I did a profile of a Minuteman, um, right? In which I I did mental backflips in order to empathize. <laughs> or partly because I'm trying to remember those, uh, you know, trying to uh, understand, again, what leads what leads someone to these attitudes and actions? What leads someone to, you know, a retiree to, to you know, take a couple of lawn chairs and, and set up camp along the U.S.-Mexico border? Mm -hmm. Do you think that, I, I think I was going to ask this, like, at the end of this chat, but do you think that there's, like, a kind of unity among non-white folks in America in a kind of dialectical way because the racism forces us all together like that there may be like a strength that comes out of this paradoxically that is the hope mm -hmm. this is why that should be the outcome <laughs> because uh politicians and political systems imperialism namely they work so hard at divide and rule mm -hmm. right divide and conquer and divide and rule i mean pat buchanan was um a wedge politician Right. He knew about emotion, too, and driving wedges between and among people. Um, so that that's why um, being united is is key, because it's a talk back to that strate strategy. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that it, it's automatic. It requires hard work um, to to see our our common and ties and united purpose in that way, because we're talking about very, very broad groups of people, right? We have to have the common consciousness, shared consciousness a little bit. Um, and the Doppelster story shows how on the ground, um, you, you know, their unity isn't, is not, is not easy because although that, though that gang, the Doppelsters was, uh, primarily a white supremacist gang, some of those attacks were um, were by other people of color. And I mentioned um, Navroz Modi, who was killed in September of 87, or um, well, he was attacked and then died. Um, the assailants in that case were or Latino, again, like young, young men, 17, 18, one of them was even 16, right? So um, what do we do with that? <laughs> How do we understand that? It's not just these tra tragedies are not just about race, but also about, um, well, so many other things about class, about religion, about disparities in income, about, um, racist ideas that work 
in, in society in, in kind of systemic ways. The way I put it in the essay is um, white skin is no prerequisite for white supremacy, something along those lines. Yeah, right? actually, I wanted to share that quote. You have, um, you, say, you say, quote, white supremacy can be so deeply embedded in the skin of societies that white skin itself is no prerequisite. People of color have committed violence against each other. Brown and black solidarities are far from given. Right. So in the case of, I'm sorry, I'll let you finish your thought. Oh, no, I was just put it I wanted to make sure we got the quote out there in the pod. Yeah, keep going. Um, so, so from 1992 to 2014, um, and sort of like a nationwide analysis of hate crimes against Asian Americans, um, uh, it was found that I think 26% of those hate crimes were committed by other people of color. Um, and for Latinos, 19% of hate crimes are committed by other people of color. For African-Americans, it's 1%, um, right? So uh, we we have a lot of work to do, <laughs> again, like in, in building that that unity. Um, and, and that is the work that scholars and journalists and just human beings interacting with each other um, on an everyday level have to do, mm -hmm. right? Understand... Um, you know, anti-blackness, the model minority myth, these are the systemic ideas that, that again, like work themselves so deeply into the skin of societies mm -hmm. that, um, you, you know, uh, it, it almost becomes internalized and people act out on it. Um, in the case of Jersey City in that moment, um, so it was historically a blue collar immigrant gateway it still is in many senses. It's also um, hugely gentrified and gentrifying at the moment. But class was, I think, a very big part of what led to the dot busters, mm -hmm. right? Because there are high poverty rates, high unemployment rates, very low uh, levels of education and home ownership um, among you know white working class ethnic ethnic folks. So the descendants of Italian immigrants and Irish immigrants, Eastern European immigrants, right, who um, were not doing well, according to the, by the statistics, right? Mm -hmm. So I see what happened as, um, as a form of, in a way, a pr protest against a society that did not um, allow them to succeed intergenerationally. I oh, think class right. had quite a bit to do with it. Yeah, even race is not entirely about race. And <laughs> that's a good way to think about it. Um, right, right. This, the like brown on brown, black on brown um, discrimination stuff reminds me of LA in like the 80s and 90s, like Korean Americans, they became a petty bourgeois like landlord class in the ghetto in South Central, especially. And like at that time, I grew up understanding that Koreans and blacks did not trust each other and they kind of hated each other. 
Uh, and there was like a pretty infamous case where a Korean American, a Korean American woman like shot a black girl in the back. It was like, it was pretty crazy. Um, but yeah. And those race relations got much better. Um, but partly it was because people started recovering the shared history of like learning and borrowing and solidarity and like what we owe each other like you you were saying in the essay too like asian americans owe a lot to the black struggle for freedom and civil rights you know we benefit from hate crimes legislation that's something black americans won through the civil rights movement and like these there as a historical fact these things are connected you know it's just a question of recognizing it like there's a common oppressor but do you think that the model minority myth that may need explaining actually i don't know if everybody knows what it is i hope they do but do you think that that disrupts or stands in the way of solidarity uh, yeah i mean it uh, absolutely absolutely does that so the model minority myth um uh, i guess it kind of has its origins in the 1965 immigration act the hard seller immigration act hmm. um which did a couple of things. It removed the bans on immigration from Asian countries um, and so allowed for the kind of rapid demographic shifts in Jersey City that created some of that sense of insecurity and led to the violence. It did that. Um, something else it did was prioritize the immigration of uh, people coming for higher education, um, or for high-skilled or professional jobs, right? Mm -hmm. So then um, because of that, it recruited a certain class of, of immigrants, right? Um, and then that was conflated with, uh, with race or ethnicity um, so that it, it became possible in a stereotypical way or a mythical way to see Asians as a, a model minority because, you know, they could be treaded out as evidence that the American dream does work. See, all you have mm. to do is come and work hard um, and have the right values and you too can own a home and, um, you know, uh, have the American dream really, right? But what, what, that, what that doesn't do is look at the structure of immigration <laughs> that recruited people um, with uh, with the educational background, um, um, brought them in to give them the educational background um, with jobs, hired for jobs, um, sort of the, the infrastructure to succeed, mm -hmm. right? Um, so the model minority myth um, does get in the way. I mean, if Asian Americans themselves believe it, it gets in the way. If if other if others believe it, it also gets in the way because what it does is obscure the history. Um, that history that you were talking about of of shared struggle, right? Of um racist bans mm -hmm. on immigration and citizenship, for instance. You know, the Hart Seller Immigration Act did away with several decades of exclusionary immigration laws, right? That were um, in a sense, um, I don't want to um, be too glib about this, but kind of like the Jim Crow of immigration mm. in, yeah, I get in it. a way, right? Yeah. Um, you mentioned how the dot busters were presaging a, 
a disturbing current in American society. What did you see them as foreshadowing? Wow. Well, <laughs> the last year, few years have taught us in the United States, haven't they? Right. Yeah. I think they were foreshadowing um, the rise of Donald Trump um, uh, at, at sort of um, dark populism, really. I mean, populism can be many different things, and it's ours to make sure that it is the right kind of mm -hmm. populism. Um, but it foreshadowed um, Charlottesville, right? The Unite yes. the Right rally. Jews will um, not replace us and all that, yeah. Right, and and the Proud Boys, um, uh, you know, the attack on the Capitol and the involvement of, of um, the far right, um, the racist far right, um, all of these were undercurrents um, in our society. And the thing is, when we came to the U.S. in 1981, uh, the country was only 15 years removed from, you know, the Civil Rights Act. And in school and receiving public school education, a public school education in New Jersey in the 80s, we were presented with this arc of progress, right? You know, this, this is where we were, and now we are a, a more perfect and just society on the question of race. Mm -hmm. So that's what that's what we we were taught was the truth. Um, and then, if there was something else happening, if there were dot busters on the ground, these were exceptions to that arc of progress, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but I think we were clearly a little too quick to to jump to those conclusions. I mean, what was undercover then or seen as exceptional then has now come out into the open, proudly proclaiming itself, right? Um, you know, S Donald Trump told the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by. I mean, you've got... Um, God dang. <sighs> yeah, yeah. Was, and was president of this country for four years and, and who knows what the future holds. So. Um, I think that that's this this moment that we're in is what the dot busters was was um, foreshadowing. Yeah, yeah. If only you could see it or center it. It was a signal. Like we, <laughs> the white nationalism was always there. You know, the racialized violence was always there. Um, and then the causes for it. I think the root causes for it. Again, like this is. I can I can only answer based um, on what my my observations were growing up in that neighborhood in Jersey City in in in, in the late eighties, right? Yeah. I do feel like it came out of this was displaced anxiety resentment because the American dream was not available to to everyone. Mm -hmm. Right. And and um, it just actually wasn't working for a whole lot of people. Um, and I mean, we need another show to break down what it is that the American dream is yeah. and how that's tied to um, both capitalism and race and maybe racial capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> um, you mentioned attending uh, for a large portion of your upbringing uh, a, a gifted and talented program and it was racially mixed but it was right. also overwhelmingly asian um do you think 
how do you think about that? Like, was it luck of the draw that it was predominantly Asian? Did that have something to do with the model minority myth as like setting Asians as a class apart? Like, what, what's your understanding of that? That that's that's such a hard question, and it's one that uh, I think I'm still trying to get my uh, my hands around. Right. So that that particular program um, uh, sort of like took took the, the highest achievers from all the gifted and talented programs across the city, and Jersey City was segregated. Right. So there were neighborhoods that were predominantly black, neighborhoods that were predominantly white, enclaves that were South Asian, etc. So. Mm-hmm. Presumably, it should have drawn um, a mix um, ethnically from across the city. And it, it did. I mean, they were um, in a class of 28, two white people, um, two Latinos, three African-Americans, and the rest of us were, were Asian-American from different backgrounds, um, a third South Asian. Okay, so to answer your question, then there is similar in my high school, by the way, in Florida. Like the breakdown is not so different. Yeah. Um, so partly, partly yes, partly, partly um, the way the education system works. I mean, like American society, those biases are internalized, and our teachers are not exceptions necessarily, right? So I'm sure that that did play a role. Having expectations um, from an African-American child that were different from expectations uh, for an Asian-American child. I think that probably did play a role, right? I mean, if I were to look at the South Asian predominance, I could say, all right, well, um, coming from British colonies, you know, perhaps with English language skills, maybe that's had something to do with it as well. I mean, Guyana, where my family is from, was a British colony. we came, um, I, as I mentioned in the piece, we didn't have much money. We did have English language skills um, and we did have family, right? It, it's complex. So, I mean, is it luck of the draw? I wouldn't quite say that because that, you know, um, again, I guess maybe this comes back to, to thinking of the psyche and the role the psyche plays when you come from somewhere else and you have nothing. Mm-hmm. In our case, we come from um, a racially divided society as well. Um, and we were, it was a poor place. It was also a place that when we left um, was, um, was a dictatorship, right? And a racialized dictatorships in which Indians in Guyana did not feel like they had a fair shot, right? So mm-hmm. um, you come, you leave that, you come with almost nothing to the United States. And then, you know, the psyche tells you, okay, here's our shot. <laughs> we have to succeed. We have yeah. to, I mean, I certainly, you know, my parents were both teachers in Guyana. So there's that as well, right? So they emphasize education, education, education. Um, so, I mean, that kind of like storied, immigrant ethic (laughs) work ethic i'm not ready to completely deconstruct that again because psychologically um you you do have i think you come to someplace new and there's a certain like drive Mm -hmm. the question is how does society either support and encourage that drive or not and that's when something like the model minority myth comes into play Mm -hmm. or Black racism comes into play, 
right? So um, where do different immigrants fit um, in that hierarchy when they land in the United States and how does that affect their chances or yeah. our chances? You had a great turn of phrase, kin is capital. What, what do you mean by that? Um, and uh, yes, what I meant by that was we had family and we had family that provided us with a footing when we arrived. Um, we, moved, we, we came and um, had a place to stay, right? My aunt and her two sons lived in a one bedroom apartment. Right. This is when you get into some of the, you know, the Im immigrant storytelling that feels mythic. But this is what happened. But also we, we true. Were, yeah. And also true. I mean, one one bedroom. She and her two sons were living in it, and she accepted us. Four people. So now suddenly seven people, in in her apartment for I think you know we stayed there for three or four months, right? So we had we had shelter, although I mean we were there was a cap on what we were allowed to leave Guyana with. Um, it amounted to $30 per person um, what? In, in, in U.S. dollars. So we came with $120 because there were four of us. Wow. But again, like we had a place to stay. My uncle ran a construction crew, uh, cement. He did cement. So my father um, went to work as a, uh, not for a long time, but in the beginning he went out. I mean, he needed money. He went out as a day laborer with my with my uncle's construction crew, hmm. right? So job, shelter, <laughs> um, and we were sponsored by another aunt who um, had come here as a nurse shortly after Heart Cellar was passed. Um, she applied in 65, the same year the, the law was passed, arrived in Jersey City in 66, hired as a nurse trainee by the Jersey City Medical Center. And I mean, she had the capital to sponsor her kin. <laughs> And, and and hundreds of Bahaduras now live in this in the city because yeah. because of her. Um, so again, I mean, English language was our privilege, and this extended family network, um, you know, that uh, we're sort of raised up, feeling a duty to each other, mm -hmm. right? That was also our privilege, which we extended to others who came after us. We also, you know, uh, took in relatives when they came and they lived with us. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, maybe this goes to your uh, ancestral Guyana experience or the pathway. Like empires, they use divide and rule tactics to preserve control of colonized populations, right? And you write in the essay that the British did this in Guyana by pitting blacks and Indians against each other. Um, that story, versions of that story exist in so many places. But you also say that the divide and rule tactic continued even after formal colonialism ended. So like, how did a post-imperial Britain continue with a kind of dividing blacks and browns against each other? Well, this is complex in the specific case of Guyana because, um, because decolonization, well, it coincided with the Cold War, as it did elsewhere in the world. Mm -hmm. But Guyana held elections for a premier before it proceeded to independence. So 1953 elections were held. Um, Marxist figure Chetty Jagan is um, elected in the first exercise of universal suffrage in Guyana, mm -hmm. right? But Guyana is still a colony, right? 
Um, and at the same time, the United States becomes interested in this emergence, the, the first emergence of a, a Marxist leader in the Western Hemisphere. So we're talking before Castro. Um, oh. And, and so, you know, the Kennedy admit Eisenhower and then Kennedy, they, they were paying attention to what's happening on the ground here. Um, and so it's not quite post-imperial in the case of Guyana because um, this interference goes on for about 13 years before Guyana becomes free. And in fact, it determines how Guyana becomes free. Uh, what I mean by that is, okay, so um, Marxist uh, leader of Indian origin, his um, parents were born on ships from India and worked on plantations. Um, he's elected nobody in the West wants him. So <laughs> the Brits and, and, the, and the Americans, we Americans, complex as that is, work together to push him out. And um, instead they champion someone who seems like much more a pragmatist. He's not an ideological Marxist, right? Mm -hmm. um, and they um, engineer the situation politically um, uh, without getting too deep into it by, um, by furthering um, a system of proportional representation that sets up the the black political leader um, as the man who would lead Guyana into independence. So it's not quite post-imperial. It's sort of, there is this interennium, this, this like decade long period um, in which Guyana is moving towards independence. And then that shapes what happens later. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, but, um, the United States, of course, plays a very big role, I would say the lead role in what happens. And at this point, um, the British are just trying to, <laughs> you know, get get this colony off their hands. Right. So yeah. willing to do willing to do what uh, what the U.S. administration desires. Wow. Um, I there was one more quote I wanted to share. There were many things that were quotable in this essay, but um, one more. You say, quote, the will to maintain power if it's perceived to be under threat and the pressure to protest the lack of it can both drive acts of hate. Both the presence and the absence of power can provoke violence. But power comes in many forms, operating at levels from the state to the street and intersecting in incongruous ways. End quote. Uh, do you see the acts of racial violence, uh, the dot busters especially, but just in general too, like... Do you see that racial violence being driven by a will to maintain power or the pressure to protest the lack of it? Both. Here we go. Um, I think both things are true because, again, the, po the power that we're discussing um, has many different forms. So I think that their religion did perhaps play a role. Mm -hmm. I mean, Pat Buchanan, he, when he was talking about taking back our culture, that was partly about maintaining a Judeo-Christian identity, right? Mm -hmm. So um, to the extent that the Dotbusters um, um, were fighting back against um, Hindus or other, other religions, then they had power in that sense, right? And were, um, were acting to defend it. Um, we're dominant mm -hmm. in, in, in that sense, and we're trying to maintain that dominance. But um, clearly they had a disadvantaged class identity, right? Yeah. And, uh, and that violence was uh, the most 
um, you know, kind of malicious, disheartening form of protest, right? It was um, people's power warped in the worst way. And people's power is um, a phrase, um, I mentioned it in the essay, the, the, the Guyanese intellectual historian, Walter Rodney, Pan-Africanist in yeah. intellectual as well, a great hero for many uh, on the left. He was on the ground in the 80s, uh, well, not the 80s, sorry, he was assassinated in 1980 in the 70s, fighting back against the dictatorship that my family fled from, the dictatorship that was put in place by the, the CIA, essentially, right? Mm -hmm. So um, he was enacting people's power uh, on the streets in, in Guyana, right? So that is, that's what the potential is um, for populism, right? To, again, we're talking about um, ideals anchored in a sense of our shared history. Mm -hmm. right? um, and that too is a, is a form of people's power. So you've got the Dotbusters version of it, you've got Walter Rodney's version of it, and then what is our version of it um, when, when we're confronted by the likes of the Proud Boys, um, and Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah, and that's well put. You you end the essay by circling back to the Pat Buchanan speech that sort of started the essay. And right. Looking back, you see it. You see that moment differently than you saw it then. Can you share how your view of what Pat Buchanan was saying has kind of shifted with time, perspective? Yeah, in that moment, I felt personally attacked. <laughs> you know, again, remember we were five years out from from the Dopbusters, mm -hmm. from when the Dopbusters started their attack. So I, I felt um, I was in a fragile and vulnerable place in terms of our own belonging as immigrants in the United States. So sure. when he said, take back our culture, take back our country, um, that's that affected the way I read those words. I saw it as ma mainly anti-immigrant, right? Mm -hmm. But um, in order to write this essay, I you could find this speech on YouTube. I listened, I, I watched the entire thing again. Um, and that's when I saw, you know, what uh, Buchanan was talking about the LA riots, which you mentioned, mm -hmm. right? And he was talking about force rooted in justice and taking back our cities right and so when he's talking about force rooted in justice the camera pans to asian american delegates um at the republican national convention we don't know who they are exactly yeah but i mean that combination of words and images to me that was clearly that was about pitting people of color against each other um, that was in some way um you know cueing the uprising in la um and it i saw it as okay well actually when he's saying take back our cities and when he's talking about a force rooted in justice, that's really directed at African-Americans. And that's kind of holding up Asian-Americans or Korean-Americans, if, if, if that's what he meant, um, if that's what the camera meant by panning to those, mm -hmm. to those people uh, as the model minority, you know, right? It, it was a lot more, it landed in a very personal way when I heard it as a young person. Mm -hmm. um, now I see it as something, in fact, much more subtle and um, uh, yeah, kind of malicious. sinister too. Yeah, sinister—that's the word I'm looking for. Yeah, yeah, man. 
You're so smart. Um, one, fi- one final quick question, uh, not about that essay, but in the Washington Post last year, you, mm-hmm. you, did, uh, you, th- you wrote this thing called How Reading Helps Us Build Empathy and Resist Tyranny. And it was mm-hmm. a great read in its own right. It was short. Uh, it was a review of Azar Nafizi's book, uh, Reading Dangerously, uh, which is very good. And I just wanted to ask, you know, and you can answer this on your own terms or via Nafizi's writing, but like, what is, what is the connection between like reading, empathy, and resistance to tyranny? That was a brilliant book. Um, I really enjoyed it. And it, it sort of spoke to the moment that uh, we're in, we're in then and are in now. Um, a polarized moment. We've been talking about white supremacy coming out into the open. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, anti-Blackness, Black Lives Matter, right? But we're also in a moment where we need more more than ever to see each other's stories and um, literature trains empathy. That's, that's what it does is it, it trains us to, to see the other and the, the other can be defined in, in many different ways. It could be um, the, the ethnic other, it could also be the political or ideological other. Um, and the best books f- allow us into the humanity of, of people who we might have a sort of like visceral reaction against. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I, I mentioned that when I became an immigration reporter, I did my darndest to write the most sympathetic profile of a Minuteman ever. I think, I mean, while still remaining true to um, his actions and his beliefs, sure. I mean, um, you don't want to swing too much to the other side, but it is important to understand the roots of of these behaviors and, and reading helps us do that. Yeah, I definitely agree. Well, thank you for this. Kaitra Bahadur. The essay is called Unmaking Asian Exceptionalism, Boston Review. It'll be in the show notes. This was so great. Thank you. I mean, I don't, (laughs) I want to write like you. That's the the aspiration. Yeah. Awesome. Great questions. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for doing this.